Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a podcast that trains you how to defend the pro-life position in a way that's effective and persuasive. Uh, we're going to cover some of the some of the news items. I only have a, a few for, for discussion here today, but before we begin, I actually received an email from a site called Podstatus. I, I looked into it, and it is a legitimate site, so I'm guessing he probably wants to try and drum up some, some interest in it. But I got an email here uh, from a guy named Carlos who runs a, a website called Podstatus and says that uh, he has some cool information that might interest us. And he says that our podcast, Pro-Life Thinking, has good performance in some rankings in the last 30 days. In the Philippines, we're ranked seventh in the category of politics and 36th in the category of news. That was, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. So to our, our Filipino listeners out there, uh, thanks for your support. We appreciate you listening in. Okay, so the first topic for discussion today is actually... The famous uh, pro-choice philosopher Judith Jarvis Thompson passed away a little over a week ago. November 20th was the day that she that she passed. I didn't actually hear, I don't see it mentioned here how she um, how she died, but that's newsworthy, of course, especially uh, regard as regards abortion, because Judith Jarvis Thompson wrote a famous essay in 1971 called A Defense of Abortion, in which she uh, expounded her, her famous violinist thought experiment, which is sort of the... Uh, thorn in the side of pro-life advocates because, you know, everyone who is educated in philosophy and every first year philosophy student that we come across will be familiar with the, with the argument and try to use it in conversation. Yeah. And I would actually say it's probably a thorn in the side of the pro-choice movement because they always like to punch at that argument. Anybody who's taken a philosophy class will punch at that argument. And they don't realize that the argument has been responded to multiple times over the last 50 years since it was written. It's not an original argument. And it's been responded to. It's been updated. David Boonin's done updates on it. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're not going to respond to the argument here. Uh, it's not really my desire to do that because we're talking about a philosopher who just recently passed away. And so yeah. we're, not, we're not trying to negate that or anything like that. I just kind of wanted to bring it up and, and talk a little bit about some of her other work because she's done a lot of work in philosophy. The violinist thought experiment and the defense of abortion article is probably what she's most well known for. But something that's a little less known 
is that she's actually done probably she's probably the philosopher who's done the most work on the trolley thought experiment. Oh. A little known fact is that a pro-life philosopher named Philippa Foote wrote, wrote an article in which she was talking about well talking about uh, life-saving abortions and double effect because she she was not convinced by double effect reasoning. And so she was actually using the, the trolley thought experiment in the course of, of talking about double effect. It's been a while since I've read the essay. So, uh, so we're not really going to talk too much about it. We, we may, you know, who knows, we may do it in, at some point because it does have applications to the abortion issue. So Philippa Foote was actually the one who first expounded the trolley thought experiment and Judith Jarvis Thompson actually came across that thought experiment, thought it was very interesting and wanted to do a lot of work on it. And so she, later on, she wrote an article about the trolley thought experiment, but I believe she actually wrote a book about it too. Um, I've not, not read the book, but I do have her article here also. So she's, yes. So she, part of her work has actually done a lot on the trolley thought experiment and she's actually done a lot of work in moral philosophy too. In fact, I had come across an article that she wrote on utilitarianism. I thought it was actually a pretty devastating critique about utilitarianism. That one I wasn't able to find anywhere. I, I read it some time ago, but uh, for whatever reason, it seems to have, <laughs> have disappeared from my collection of academic articles that I've printed out. Yeah, so that's just some of the other work that she's done besides her work in abortion. I thought it was worth uh, pointing out. Do you think you'd be able to sum up some of the points in the article about utilitarianism? Uh, well, not not today. Uh, like I said, yeah. I wasn't able to find it. Uh, I wanted to read it again and kind of review her points, but but no, I, I yeah, I wouldn't be able to to summarize those today just because I wasn't able to to read it before our broadcast here today. But it, the article itself is definitely worth reading. You know, uh, utilitarianism actually moral philosophy has a lot to do with abortion too. So at some point we may end up talking about it, reviewing some of right. uh, some of these other articles on the Charlie Thought Experiment and utilitarianism. So uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson, rest in peace. Moving on from that comes a, a little bit more of a bizarre news article. This is an article that uh, was published in New York Post. It's called Makers of Grow Your Own Human Steaks Say Meal Kit is Not Technically Cannibalism. The title for the article kind of says it all, that this is basically a, a way to grow food from human cells, essentially. So you can grow your own human meat for consumption. And so this has a couple of applications that, number one, if you're able to grow your own grow meat from your own cells, well, you don't have to actually start consuming animals. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, vegans and uh, vegetarians would say that it's wrong to, to consume meat. There are a number of pro-life people who are vegans and vegetarians also. I'm not sure if because I'm not a vegan or vegetarian, obviously, and I have my own thoughts on this, which I'll, which I'll say in a, in a minute. But as for the, the vegans and vegetarians who are pro-life, I'm not sure if their compunction is just with the fact that you have to kill the animal in order to consume it, or if they think uh, if you can grow your own animal meat in a laboratory, if they would think that that would be morally acceptable to consume animal meat grown in a lab as long as you don't have to actually kill the animal. So I'm not sure where they would, would land on that. But where, of course, I would land on that because... One of the aspects of bioethics is in what kind of thing something is. And so just because you can grow human meat in a lab doesn't necessarily mean that it's permissible to consume that human meat because you're consuming something that is human. And so if something that is human has uh, has an intrinsic value, you know, if it really is cannibalism to consume human meat, regardless of it, if, if whether it comes from yourself or not, well, then it's it would be impermissible to consume it anyway. Frankly, well, I guess I could say, you know, a lot of bioethicists might have a beef with this issue. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. 
what goes through somebody's mind that they would want to even bother giving this a try? Like, hey, let's see if we can grow human meat and then see if it tastes good enough to consume it. I mean, what goes through somebody's mind that that's a smart idea? Well, uh, I've called up the New York Post article here, and they actually do talk about that a bit. Uh, It's called the Ouroboros steak after the circular symbol of a snake eating itself tail first, because, of course, that that's symbolic of the fact that if you pursue this as, as a as a form of, of meal, you'll essentially be eating yourself. And so that's where the, the symbolism of the snake eating itself and the calling it the Ouroboros steak comes from. So it says here that uh, it's not a product available to buy. It was created by scientist Andrew Pelling, artist Orkan Tilhan and Knight, an industrial designer on commission by the Philadelphia Museum of Art for an exhibit last year. So it's not something that is available yet, but it's something that I think scientists are working toward. And they're definitely working toward growing meat in the lab too, uh, because that way you don't have to, you know, kill animals for it. But yeah, so here we, we have we have the line of why they want to actually grow meat based on your own cells. So here, uh, a website for this product states that, quote, growing yourself ensures that you and your loved ones always know the origin of your food, how it has been raised, and that its cells were acquired ethically and consensually, end quote. So essentially, the reason that they want to, that they're saying they want to grow meat based on your own cells, which of course makes it human meat, is that you know the origin of your food, you know how your food has been raised, and you know that the cells were acquired, what they call ethically, that kind of begs the question because then the question is, well, why wouldn't killing animals for food be ethical? That's a question that we need to address. And then, of course, consensually. But, it, but of course, if animals don't have rights, then there's no ethical problem with not, with not getting their consent before using them for food. So this, uh, this new story here kind of has a couple of different, uh, kind of raises a couple of ethical questions. Number one, is it permissible in the first place to consume animals for food? you know, especially if you have to to kill them for it. And number two, is it permissible to eat human meat for food, even if it comes from yourself? One of the statements here in the article is that eating yourself is not technically cannibalism. And let me see if I can, because there's a statement in here that goes into a little more detail about why why the person doesn't think it's actually cannibalism. One thought that I would add to this is it seems to be an underlying assumption that it is that makes or breaks whether or not this is a moral idea and saying that that way you can make sure if you purchase our product or you're able to grow your own meat then that way you can know right here this line where it says growing yourself ensures that you and your loved ones always know the origin of your food how it has been raised and that its cells were acquired ethically and consensually and you kind of hit on this a little bit is why is it so important to have consent in this case and chris kaiser actually points this out in his book uh his recent book on bioethics when we interviewed him a few weeks ago he makes a good point in there as he said he goes you know why do we need to make such a big deal about consent well human beings we respect the consent of other human beings because they are human in the first place that's what gives us because humans have intrinsic dignity that's why we have an obligation to respect their consent and that's what's kind of making me wonder here is i'm going why is consent the sole basis for what makes us ethically acceptable and well it's because human beings have intrinsic dignity well, if human beings have intrinsic dignity, then should we be growing essentially human body parts in order to consume them? That doesn't really follow from the moral principle they're uh, employing here. Yeah, and I, I didn't find uh, where it said it in the article. It seems, seems like they're just saying that eating yourself is technically not cannibalism. And so, of course, that's an assumption, too, because from what I understand of the definition of cannibalism, it's just eating a member of one's own species. And you are a member of your species, which would make it cannibalism. So calling it 
not technically cannibalism to try and make this more palatable for people to support, you know, it's just relying on a false definition of what cannibalism actually is. Now, right. you know, it's, it's removing the, the, the moral problem of you don't have to kill someone to take their meat, but you're still consuming human flesh, which has ethical problems. Again, I don't know how vegans or vegetarians would address this kind of problem, but, you know, for, for someone who takes a, a stance on, on human consumption, that it's always ethically wrong to consume human flesh, well, then this kind of thing won't be an ethical solution to eating animals or anything like that. I think part of it goes into concern right now among a lot of environmentalists is that a lot of our dietary habits are not sustainable. So when you go to the grocery store, you'll see in the freezer aisle, they'll have sustainable meat or sustainable fish partially because a lot of fish and meat has been overconsumed, and so it's really hard to sustain it. So that's where a lot of the big push is for laboratory production of meat. So laboratory produced beef, that way you don't have so much resources going to feeding a herd of cattle that's eventually gonna be slaughtered. Or same thing with fish, is that that way we don't have to worry about fish populations being overfished or overhunted, um, and that way we can continue sustaining it. So. That's a big part of the reason why there's a push for laboratory produced meat, not necessarily for the vegan or vegetarian community, although that is a large part of it, but it's also because of the environmental concerns right now. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I can get behind too, growing, if, if it's safe to consume lab grown meat, I can, I can get behind consuming meat grown in a laboratory so that we can, you know, so, so that we can try not to prevent certain animal right. groups from going extinct like fish and uh, in certain game animals and things like that but again i don't think it's immoral to kill animals for food because i don't think that they're you know they don't have any any sort sort of rights to life or or bodily integrity or anything like like we do and so uh, i don't believe that means that we can then torture animals because i think they're the fact that they are sentient beings that can feel pain i think that matters and i think that right. we shouldn't we should not unjustly torture them or anything like that but I don't think there's anything ethically problematic with consuming them for food. But right. again, yeah, if we can safely grow meat in the lab where we can save animal species from going extinct, then that's something I can get behind too. But not if it comes to actually growing human flesh for consumption, even if it comes from me. I mean, you know, there's a cultural taboo against that. But, you know, if you believe that there's something, there's nothing really inherently sacred about the flesh itself. But the fact that it comes from a, from a human, you know, there's, there's certain things, if you believe in the sanctity of human life, then there are certain things that we shouldn't be doing to a human. You know, we shouldn't be consuming humans, even if you can do it without killing them. We shouldn't be cloning humans, things like that. So, but again, that's a discussion that could take up a whole show by itself or right. several shows, in fact. Moving on to, to the last news item that I had for today. This is a bit more of a somber one. You know, of course, we're going through this whole coronavirus COVID-19 thing where certain you know our governors are basically requiring us to be on lockdown uh, something that a lot of people don't seem to be considering you know because obviously we, we want to keep people safe we don't want them catching COVID-19 especially if you're in one of the groups of people who are at the greatest risk of it who are the elderly or people with a comorbidity or you know something like that we want to make sure we're keeping these people safe but what is not being really talked about is the toll that lockdown is taking on people. You know, they, they, I've seen studies that say that the suicide rates have risen pretty dramatically since lockdown began. Uh, and so here uh, I have a couple of stories from the news. Uh, and and I, again, all of these news stories I put in the, well, it'll go in the show notes for the podcast, but I've also put it in, on the YouTube page, you know, where, where you can see the, 
the description. Yeah, the description. That's what I was looking for. So it's in the description on the YouTube page also. So here, I was made aware of this by some friends that I have in Baltimore that the school shutdown drove a teen at school to depression and suicide. And so this is something that needs to be dealt with as well. But there's something even more egregious that that is going on here. But uh, this kind of shows that the, the lockdown itself is something that ha- is taking too too much of a toll on human beings because humans are not made for isolation. They say that, for example, in prison, if a, a police officer or or a warden puts a criminal in solitary confinement for a day or more, they call that cruel and unusual punishment. Now we're doing this to people who haven't committed any crimes, all in the name of trying to keep them safe from this illness, which has a very, very, very high rate of survivability. So it's it's not even like we're dealing with, with the Black Plague or anything like that here. But we are, in fact, dealing with something that is more dangerous than the flu. You know, we don't we don't want to downplay the danger of COVID. But it's not like we're dealing with something that is exceptionally dangerous, like the Black Plague or, or anything like that. Right. And so, yeah, so this kind of thing is having a toll on people, especially on kids who aren't able to go and and be social around other kids their age or around even their own family members. And this is definitely a case, unfortunately, I mean, and people who have supported the lockdowns, there is a lot of good intention behind it. Nobody wants to see a family member get sick with COVID-19, especially family members and friends who are at risk. But at the same time, unfortunately, there has been a lot of good intentions outweighing wisdom and clear thinking about what the possible ramifications will be. Thomas Sowell has a really good book on this called uh, Visions of the Anointed, where he points out how public policy over the last 150 years that has been driven by good intentions, but disconnected from wisdom and clear thinking has actually done a lot of damage, whether it be in regards to crime and policing, whether it be in regards to, uh, he has a section about uh, the effects of birth control on the unplanned pregnancy rate, which is obviously of interest to pro-lifers. Lastly, this year with just the COVID lockdowns, there's been a lot of good intentions behind it saying, we don't want people to die from COVID-19. Well, obviously nobody does. Uh, Nobody's open to that. The problem is if you disconnect that and say, well, what are the possible outcomes or the ramifications for locking everybody down? And we're starting to see those outcomes. There was another article that suicides within the military and the veteran community are up higher than they've ever been because of the COVID lockdowns. Because human beings were made as social creatures, were made to be in relationship with everybody else. And it's caused, it's taking a large toll on people. And unfortunately, this is another example that just because you have good intentions, it doesn't mean you're going to choose the wisest option uh, when it comes to public policy. And that, that's unfortunately playing out right now. Yeah. And this article here is from Fox 5 News. And they actually have some some stats here about the the rising numbers of anxiety and depression, where they talk about how the full impact of the COVID pandemic is not yet known, but early numbers are alarming. In August, the CDC reported symptoms here. In 2019, people ages 18 to 24, 8% of those people had anxiety. And in 2020, that number rose dramatically up to 25% of young people from 18 to 24. And when it comes to depression, In 2019, 6% of people 18 to 24 had depression. And in 2020, now that number has risen to 24%. And according to the same article, uh, thoughts of suicide, especially among young people, are staggering. The same report found 26% of people 18 to 24 had considered suicide in just the past month, which is the month of August when this was published. So the the lockdown has taken quite a toll on it. 
you know, cases of, of people committing suicide are bad enough. But there is one uh, article that I came across written by Wesley J. Smith that actually does have implications for the, the larger bioethics issue as well. And so Wesley J. Smith here wrote an article about how an elderly woman in Canada was euthanized to avoid the anguish of lockdown loneliness. There are a lot of reasons to argue against uh, legalizing euthanasia, you know, that have to do with things like if you have a right to life and your rights are inalienable, then that means that you can't have a right to die because an inalienable right means that you can't rightly have your right taken away and you can't rightly give your right away. For example, you can't sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. Uh, if your right to freedom is inalienable. So if our right to life is inalienable, meaning it can't be taken away, uh, that also means that it can't be given away. So we can't have a right to die because of our right to life. There are a lot of different reasons. Uh, another reason would be that uh, assisted suicide means that this is actually an act of homicide because a doctor is taking your life. It's not just you taking your own life. So right. you're actually asking a doctor to become complicit and uh, an active participant in your own suicide. So, yeah, there are a lot of uh, ethical arguments against euthanasia. But a pragmatic argument against euthanasia is just that, you know, there's the argument that a, a right to die eventually becomes a duty to die and you'll eventually be euthanized against your own will. But another one is that it really starts to people start to have lower and lower opinions about human life. Right. And so you, you start to justify more and more situations in which euthanasia is something that we can permit. And here we see in Canada, a woman, uh, an elderly woman was killed by her doctor because she would rather be dead than go through another COVID lockdown. So this COVID lockdown was so bad. In fact, uh, actually, I'll just I'll go ahead and just read the article in full because it's actually pretty short. This is from Wesley J. Smith. He says, an elderly Canadian woman was killed by her doctor because she would rather be dead than go through another COVID lockdown. When it looked like she would have to be confined to her room for two weeks, she asked for and received the lethal jab due to declining mental health and vitality from the CTV story. Russell, described by her family as exceptionally social and spry, was one such person. Her family says she chose a medically assisted death, MAID, after she declined so sharply during lockdown that she didn't want to go through more isolation this winter. This time, doctors approved her. Russell would not have to go through another lockdown in her care home. She just truly did not believe that she wanted to try another one of those two-week confinements into her room, her daughter said. But note for her death, she could be surrounded by friends and family. When 90-year-old Nancy Russell died last month, she was surrounded by friends and family. They clustered around her bed, singing a song she had chosen to send her off as a doctor helped her through a medically-assisted death. So companionship to be made dead, but not to remain alive. And her family thinks this was a fine option, demonstrating how the social mindset becomes twisted by euthanasia consciousness. But we are told killing to end suffering is oh so compassionate and lockdowns are measures of good public health. Bah! And that's actually in the article. Uh, those with eyes to see, let them see. So yeah, so here we see that an elderly patient can't see her own friends and family, but if she wants to kill herself, they'll allow the friends and family to be there present with her. And we also see the irrationality here, not just from a euthanasia mindset, but just that, you know, we, we recognize COVID-19 as a danger to elderly people. So we want to lock everyone down to prevent elderly people from contracting a disease that could possibly kill them, but will allow euthanasia of an elderly person to kill herself to avoid the lockdown that we're instituting to try and keep her from getting that illness that might result in her death. It's, it's insane. I remember when you and I were talking about this on Facebook the other day, I said, I go, you know, what kind of moral idiot can you be to see that to think that it makes sense that, oh, we're going to lock you down for your own good so you don't get COVID-19 and die. 
But if you feel like that you'd rather be dead than be in lockdown again, we'll go ahead and kill you, even though the reason why you're in lockdown is so that you wouldn't catch COVID-19 and die. This is moral idiocy at its finest. I mean, yeah. how insane do you have to be to think this even remotely makes sense? And Jonathan Van Maren in his book um, Discussing Assisted Suicide, he makes a really good point is he says, you know, when it comes to people saying, well, I have people have a right to die or they have a right to assisted suicide, he says, you know, where do we draw the line? Uh, suppose the 15 year old boy who just broke up with his girlfriend, he's very depressed and he doesn't think life is worth living. Does he have a right to die? I don't think anybody would agree with that. So that means this whole idea of a right to die is actually not really much of a right to begin with, because a right is something that cannot be taken away from us. Well, certain types of rights. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, we need to make a distinction between natural rights and, and legal rights. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point, too. And that if if there is a right to die, well, you can't just keep people from exercising their rights. And yet right. we, we all have a very strong intuition that someone who just kills themselves for no reason is doing something wrong and that they should right. prefer to continue living. And yet, if there really is such thing as a right to die, well, we can't just allow people who are terminally ill to exercise that right. But we should, you know, if a, if a teenage boy is dumped by his girlfriend and wants to kill himself, well, there's nothing wrong with that. We should allow him to do it because he has a right to die. Well, that, that's not something that I think anyone would agree with. And so that shows that we don't actually have a right to die. The thought about killing someone who's terminally ill that we can't help you know, is grounded in, in a sense of compassion, but it's misplaced compassion because killing someone is never a benefit to that person. The benefit to that person would be healing them. If it's not possible for us to heal someone from their ailment, killing them is not a benefit to that person. In fact, it removes any possibility that that person could ever potentially get better. <laughs> this actually reminds me of, of Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which is, you know, largely hailed as, as one of the worst Star Trek films. But they actually address uh, euthanasia in uh, in that film. This guy, Cybok, who's the half-brother of Spock, okay, yeah, uh, com comes on yeah, comes on the Enterprise and wants to help remove the pain from, from everybody. And turns out one of McCoy's deepest pain was that as a doctor, he euthanized his own father. But shortly thereafter, a cure for the, what the father had had been created. And so if, if Dr. McCoy had just waited a, a little while longer, he would have had a, a cure for his father's ailment and would have, wouldn't have had to kill him. So, you know, Dr. McCoy acted out of compassion, but by killing his father, he basically removed any sort of possibility that his father could have ever recovered from it. Right. So that's just one, one more, you know, like I said, there are a lot of things wrong with euthanasia and this is just one of several reasons. You know, those are the those are the news items that I thought were a couple of them kind of interesting, uh, all of them worth talking about. That's pretty much what we have for today. But coming up here on Thursday, we have an interview that is going to be very interesting. And I know that a lot of people are actually looking forward to this interview. We're interviewing on Thursday, December 3rd. So coming up this next Thursday at 8 o'clock a.m., Pacific time, we're going to be bringing on Helen Watt, who is a doctor and works for the Anscombe Bioethics Center in Oxford, England. So this will actually be our first guest that we've had from across the pond. That's also why it's going to be a little bit earlier at 8, at 8 a.m. because that's actually 4 p.m. For, for Dr. Watt. And so we're going to talk to her about the ethics of pro-life people taking vaccines that were developed using fetal cells. And so I, I already know there's there are a number of people who are interested in this conversation uh, who've been telling me on, on our pro-life thinking page and also just uh, just personally. So, yeah, that's going to be a really, really good discussion. 
thank you again for for listening in. And again, thank you to the the people in the Philippines for making our podcast uh, such a popular one. Thanks again to Nathan for joining me for this discussion. Thanks to you for listening in. If you thought this discussion was beneficial, feel free to share this around social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, MeWe, Parlor, wherever it is you frequent. You know, this is a, a weekly podcast and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week uh, on top of all of the things that we need to do uh, to, to keep the, the information flowing in to make sure we can keep on top of, of everything, the academic discussion, things like that. So if you have the means and would like to become a financial supporter of the podcast uh, or, or of our uh, pro-life work in general, you can uh, go to the Life Training Institute website, which is www.prolifetraining.com. And you can go to the, the drop-down menu at the top. Uh, there's a place to donate. You can put my name in the uh, donation, you know, so they know to put my put your donation into my account. And, you know, that there's a number of things for this podcast that we can use it for. One of those things being that I'd like to get a, a paid uh, subscription to StreamYard because there's a lot more bells and whistles we can use if we get uh, a paid subscription to StreamYard. So uh, if you'd like to donate toward that, you know, that's uh, that's a great way to do it. And donations to Life Training Institute are tax deductible. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.